Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We are in week number four of our series, Rogue Warrior Poet King. We will wrap this up next week. This is a series on the life of David. I'd wanted to do this series for a long, long time and finally figured out where we could do it. Um, One of the greatest measures of a person's maturity is how we handle authority, power, and influence. How do we respond when, when we realize that we are the most powerful, most influential person in the room? And just in case you don't know, do you know how to figure out who's the most influential person in the room? When something off color gets said, when something controversial gets said, who do you look at to see if it's okay? That's how you know who the most powerful person in the room is, okay? I don't know if you know that, but that's a, that's a clue. You, know, you hear something, you're like, ooh, what do we think about that? And you look to that one person to tell you, this is what we think about that. That's the person with the juice in the boardroom, in the classroom, in the locker room, at work, at home. At any moment that it dawns on you, all eyes are on me. I'm in charge. I'm the one with the juice. I'm the one that has influence. Everybody is looking to me. What we do in those moments says so much about us because the greatest, our, the greatest reflection of our individual maturity is what we do with our influence. And few things are more disturbing than to watch somebody with great influence abuse that influence. Few things are more disturbing than watching a leader or someone who's been entrusted with power and influence to deny the people that they are responsible to lead and to make decisions that will enrich them or, or further along their agenda. On the flip side of that, few things are more inspiring than a leader or someone with influence who says no to themselves, puts themselves behind everybody else to the betterment of the people that they serve. And here's the thing, none of us really knows which lever we would pull or what button we would push until somebody actually gives us access to the levers or buttons in life. We don't really know which way we would go with this idea of influence until someone puts us in a position and we actually have authority, or as in David's case, until we get the crown. When David was in middle school, the prophet Samuel who was really the only other authority in the nation of Israel beside King Saul, Samuel showed up at David's home. Now, David wasn't home that day. David was out tending sheep. And David showed up at the, Samuel showed up at the house of Jesse, and, and he said, I'm here on a mission. Now, he didn't tell anybody, but it was a secret mission. And it was a secret mission because he was there to anoint the next king of Israel. The problem with that is that there was already a king in Israel, and if that king found out that Samuel, by God's, Uh, invitation had gone to Jesse's house to anoint the next king, uh, Saul wouldn't have been too happy about that and Samuel would have paid the price. So if you're going to anoint a new king, that needs to be a secret mission. Samuel shows up. He doesn't even tell Jesse why he's there. He just basically says, I've come here for a special sacrifice. I want you to invite all your family to this special sacrifice. And Samuel's thinking to himself, I'm going to see one of these sons of Jesse and I'm going to get the God nod. I'm going to get that nudge. I'm going to get that thing that says, hey, that's the one, and you will anoint him. So Jesse invites all of the people that are special to this sacrifice. He invites his sons. And Samuel is scanning the crowd for which one he thinks is going to be the next king of Israel. He's waiting for the God nod. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read this. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. I mean, Eliab was this big strapping young lad. He's the oldest 
He's, you know, he's got it all going on. His physical appearance is amazing. And then we get this nugget from Scripture, and I love this. Verses, uh, verse 7, I love verse 7. Um, I just think this is something that we need to pay attention to in life, and I, I love that this is in Scripture. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance, which is hard to do because what, what stands out to you about people, the first thing you notice is usually not their IQ. It's usually not their manners. It's usually not anything like that. Usually the first thing you notice about someone is their appearance. And all of us have probably you know, made a judgment on somebody based on how they have presented themselves to us. I know we're not supposed to do that, and I'm saying the, the part I'm supposed to keep silent, I'm saying it out loud, but I'm, I'm, it's true, isn't it? We've all done that. We've all seen someone and, and made an assumption about them based on their appearance, and, and then we get to know them, and we're like, well, that's not what I expected at all. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. We had the Trinity basketball team in here in first service. I had them stand up. They're all like seven feet tall, you know. Don't look at the height of their stature because I have rejected him. Why, God, would you say that? And we learn something here. Why, God? For God sees not as man sees, for man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, what's in a man is what makes a man. Ladies, take note. What's in a man makes a man. Men. What's in a woman makes a woman. So, Never mind, you guys are beyond hope. It doesn't matter with you guys. You, I could, you're, you're gonna look at their appearance no matter what I say. Story goes on. Six sons later, still no king. All the sons are there. They're starting to sacrifice. They're you know, getting this sacrifice thing going. Samuel's looking around and he thinks to himself, you know, maybe I've missed something. I was looking for this, this person that I was gonna anoint the king and I'm not getting the God nod. And so he, he turns to Jesse in an awkward moment and he asks Jesse a question that is an awkward question and it's an awkward question because you should never have to ask a father this question. But this is what gets asked of Jesse. Are, are these all the sons you have? Now, that's not a question you should have to ask Jesse. That's a silly question. And Jesse looks around and he's like, oh, yeah, verse 11, there's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And when David shows up, the shepherd boy of all of 13 or 14 years old, Samuel gets the God nod. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And then this strange thing happens. Jesse, uh, or Samuel gets up and he walks over to David and he pours oil on his head. And I don't know what all kind of things he would have done in that ceremony, but uh, it probably all looked kind of strange or maybe not. Maybe they were used to seeing people get blessed like that. But he gives him this blessing and then Samuel packs up all of his stuff and he leaves. And all the rest of the family is standing there and they're looking around and they're kind of saying, what just happened? What was that? Because we get no indication that Samuel told Jesse or the kids, or David for that matter, what this anointing was, was about. But we know this, we know that from the time David was a little boy, he knew that God had something special for him. And about 18 months to two years later, 
David kills Goliath and becomes a household name. He, he blows up. He, he is a, an overnight sensation. Everybody knows who David is. He is in the good graces of the kingdom. He, he marries one of Saul's daughters. He becomes best friends with King Saul's son, who is really in line to be the next king. And David, for the next seven years, are pretty great for him. He's hanging out in the palace. And then as we saw last week, Saul puts a bounty on David's head. And David becomes a fugitive for eight years. For eight years, David is on the run with his band of merry men as he makes his way through the wildernesses around him. He is trying not to side with the Philistines. At the same time, he's trying to stay out of the way of King Saul and the Israelite army because if they catch him, they're going to kill him. All the while knowing that God has chosen him and, and there's something special about him. God wants to do something through David. And as you read through this incredibly detailed narrative, you see that David is learning some extraordinarily important lessons in life. And perhaps the greatest lesson that David has learned in all of his time in the wilderness is the lesson that this is not about me. It is God's will, God's way, and God's time. This is an interesting aspect to the story of David. On two different occasions, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Now, you may know one of these stories. The other one I doubt you know very well. The story that most people know fairly well, there's one famous story where David is hiding with his men in a cave. And they're kind of back from the mouth of this cave. They're hiding in there. They know that Saul and his men are getting ready to pass by. And so they're hunkered down way back in the cave, and they're just expecting uh, Saul and the men to go past the mouth of the cave and when they do they're going to slip out and leak out and go the other direction but the plan gets changed when Saul decides he needs to go to the bathroom and we're told about that in scripture which may be one of the few places you read about somebody having to go to the bathroom in scripture um, if you ever read in the bible he went to cover his feet that's what that means just think about that for a minute because that's what you do right you cover your feet so King Saul goes into this, the mouth of this cave, and his eyes are not adjusted to the darkness. King uh, David and his men have been in the cave for a while, so their eyes are adjusted. King Saul gets in there. He, he basically is relieving himself, and now he is in this very, very vulnerable position. And um, David can see that he's got an opportunity in front of him. And the, the rest of the men are kind of looking at David, and, and you know, I, I don't imagine that they said this out loud, great, there's a wasp. He's your problem now. My experience is they're so lethargic, they, they, they're, not, they're harmless, they're not going to hurt you, but... We, we have an issue we're trying to fix, and we can't fix it. Um, where was I? The men are in the back of the cave. David sees King Saul, and he's using the bathroom. And, the men, you know, I don't imagine that they're talking out loud. I imagine it's one of those things where they're looking at each other with the crazy, like, kind of sign language, like, you know. But we're told that they're, they're conversing. And, you know, basically, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? David, God has delivered Saul into your hands on this day. I mean, he's put him on a tee for you. This is perfect. The way we would say this is, 
It's a God thing. It's a God thing. Here's what David's men said. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David almost falls for this. He almost goes for it. He he creeps up on King Saul. He's about to kill him. He's going to walk out of the cave after he kills him. He's going to tell all these soldiers that are out there, I just killed your king. They're going to capitulate. They're going to understand David is now our new king. And everybody's going to be happy. And David knew that if he did that, everyone outside and everyone behind him would rally around him. He would be the new king. And just as David is about to to kill King Saul, he realizes, I've already done the wrong thing twice. I'm not going to make the same mistake again. I'm going to learn a lesson from all of the things that I've done before. I will not take matters into my own hands. King Saul finishes his business. He goes out, he gets on his donkey. He's getting ready to ride away with the men. And David appears at the mouth of the cave. And everybody, including King Saul, knows that David could have taken Saul out if he'd wanted to. But he chose not to. And there's a little bit of a rascal in David. And we're about to find out. He walks out to the mouth of the cave And he gets everyone's attention and he says, Hey Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. In other words, everybody behind me knows, everybody in your army knows, I I haven't done anything to, to deserve this. I have every right to take your life because you've been coming after me, but I'm not gonna do that. Then there's another story that's not as well known. A few months later, Saul and his army are in the wilderness of Ziph, the desert of Ziph. It's a wide open plain. There are not very many trees in this particular region. The the hills are kind of rolling hills and and Saul and his men are out there. And David has been kind of tracking Saul. He keeps sending out spies. He wants to know where Saul is so that he can avoid him. And the report comes back to David that King Saul is in the desert of Ziph and they're camped out for the night. So David cannot resist. So he gets a a small troop together and they make their way to the desert out where where they can get up on a ridge and they can see the the army encamped there in the valley. And um, he's going to bed down for the night and just keep his eyes on the Israelite army. Just wants to know where they are, just wants to kind of track things. And he's watching and, and, and Saul is completely surrounded by 3,000 men, and Saul does what kings would do. He makes his camp in the middle of those 3,000 men. He gets ready to go to bed. He takes his spear. He drives it into the ground right next to where his head is going to be. And the sun goes down. And David couldn't resist. He turns to his friend Abishai, and he says, Hey, Abishai, I've got a really bad idea. I want to go down there. You want to go with me? And Abishai says, I'm in. Let's go. Let's ride. Let's make it happen. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner, and Abner is one of King Saul's chief bodyguards, Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to him, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Like, here here we go again. You missed the first opportunity. David, here's another opportunity. God wills it. 
God wills it. Haven't you ever said that? God wills it. I mean, this is a God thing. How can you miss this? The stars have lined up. Everything's perfect. Look at these circumstances. How else can you explain the fact we have wandered into the Israelite army undetected? Nobody knows we're here. There's a spear right here on the ground. David, all you've got to do is take him out. Everybody will fall out. King Saul is right there. And then Abishai says to the Lord, to, to, uh, to David, he says, listen, I know you and the Lord have this thing. I know you've told the Lord that you will not hurt the Lord's anointed. I know you've got, you know, you and God have this thing. I don't have that thing with God. It wouldn't be nothing for me to take that spear and, 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 and drive it through his heart. Look at this look, verse. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. What he's saying is, I'll make it clean. I'll make it fast. And David, when I do this, his eyes are going to pop open, and the last sight he sees in this life is you, the next king, standing over him as the lights go out for him. You, you should read your Bible. All this is in there. There's all kinds of detail I'm skipping. I mean, it's fascinating. I, I'm waiting on somebody to have enough guts to make the true life of David story, it would be epic and it would, it would make millions of dollars. If you've got that, go for it. Verse nine. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? In other words, I refuse to violate the will of God in order to gain the blessing of God. I refuse to violate the will of God in order to gain the promise of God. I won't do that, Abishai. This is not about me. But while we're here, because David's got a little rascal in him, while we're here, let's have a little fun. So he looks at Abishai and he says, hey, you take Saul's spear, I'm going to take his canteen. And they creep out of the camp, they go up on a hillside, and they're up on this hillside as the sun begins to rise behind them. And as the sun comes up, David stands up with the canteen and the spear, and he hollers down at Abner, and, and, and they can see David against the, the morning, he's silhouetted, silhouetted against the morning sky. And David stands there and he cries out in this voice, Hey, Abner! And everybody knew the voice of David. Abner, are you missing anything? And Abner looks around and he realizes that they've come into the camp and they've taken King Saul's spear. They've taken his water jug. And David shouts out, you're a horrible bodyguard. <laughs> you, you stink as a bodyguard. I could have killed the king overnight, but I didn't. I didn't lay a finger on him. I didn't touch him. Abner, you deserve to die because you are a horrible bodyguard. And David and his men melt away into the desert because David refused to replace what God had put in place. Why? Because it has to be God's will and God's way and God's time. Now, we're skipping a lot. But eventually, King Saul and Jonathan are both going to die at the hands of the Philistines. And those two men were the two men that really stood in the way of David becoming the king. And Scripture tells us that David actually mourned the death of these two men. I mean, I understand the mourning Jonathan's death. They were close. They'd been almost like brothers, but 
Um, you, read that, you read that story about those stories about Jonathan and David, and they were very, very close. But it's, it's a little surprising to see how David mourns the death of King Saul, but he does. So the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe from which David came, they declare David the king over their particular tribe. Meanwhile, there's another son of Saul named Ishbosheth. And, and he is in cahoots with Abner, and he is declared the king also. He is declared the king over the remaining 11 tribes, and David is the king over one of the tribes of Israel. And for seven more long years, there's going to be conflict between the house of Saul through Ishbosheth and the house of David. And throughout this time, David basically just tries to stay out of the way. He tries to avoid conflict with Ishbosheth. He's, he's really trying to keep the peace. And, and, you know, all these people are saying, David, you've got to claim what is yours. The, you know, this, the whole kingdom should belong to you. You've got to go take what, what should rightfully be yours. And, and over and over, David says, it is God's will. It is God's timing. It is God's way. I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. And if Ishbosheth has been declared the king, then I will recognize that and I will honor that. And I just need to stay out of his way. This goes on for seven years. Finally, two brothers sneak into Ishbosheth's house. Say that five times fast. Sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he is taking a nap, and they kill him in his sleep. And they think they have done this great thing for David. You know, they think they're going to be national heroes. This is the last obstacle to David becoming the king of the entire nation of Israel. When they cut off Ishbosheth's head, and they, they, they take it to David. They're gonna, they think they're going to receive a reward. They think they're going to get a big attaboy when they give David the news. And then we read this. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. So, so they've cut off his head, they've stuffed it in a bag, they show up at David's place expecting that they're going to get a reward. They're going to be heroes. They're fist bumping each other. You know, they're high-fiving. Woo! You know, like, woo, we're awesome. And then the music changes. You know how we've been saying that? The music changes. Here it is. David answered Rechab and his brother Ba'anah, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite. Some of you dudes right now are trying to figure out, how do I become a Berethite? I want to be one of those. <laughs> I've been waiting all week for that line. <laughs> as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble? In other words, the Lord didn't need your help. The Lord does not need my help. Verse 10, when someone told me Saul is dead, in other words, fellas, let me tell you a little story. When someone told me Saul is dead and, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and had him put to death. We skipped that part of the story. The second part of verse 10. That was the reward I gave him for his news. And if you're these two dudes, if you're Rechab and Ba'ana, you're thinking to yourself, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think I just heard the music change, and that's not good for us. Verse 11. How much more? When wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, to which the people around David would say, innocent man? This guy occupies a throne that you've been blessed to receive. 
How in the world can you call him an innocent man? But that's not how it worked in David's mind. In David's mind, it was God's will. It was God's way. It was God's timing. I will not lay my hand on God's anointed. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed. Verse 12, so David gave an order to his men and they killed them. You have to understand, this is the culture of the day. We read this and we're like, man, it's just barbaric. These were warring clans, warring cultures. This was common. This happened, this is not, you know, we read this through Christian eyes and we're like, oh, they're just so mean to one another. No, this this is the way it was, okay? The king could do what he wanted and he wasn't messing around. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it. This was an honor. This is David's way of honoring Ishbosheth. He took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Well, now that Ishbosheth is dead, the other 11 tribes. They declare for David, and at last, the whole kingdom is united. The entire nation comes under the rule of David. After being a fugitive for eight years, and after being at war with the house of Saul for another seven years, we read this in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led, the Israel, led Israel on their military campaigns. David, we all know who had the influence. We all know who had the juice. You're the one going out to fight all these bad guys. You're the one that's been taking care of Israel. We know that. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. We know all this, David. There was no mystery. Everybody understood who David was and what his destiny was. His destiny was to be the king. They didn't understand why David wouldn't just go grab what was rightfully his. David, why don't you go take it? Take it by force. Verse 3, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, they're going to crown him. They're going to they're hand him all the power. And at this moment, David shows his true greatness because it is here that David applies everything he has learned along the way. All the mistakes he's made are now starting to pay off, and he's starting to show a little bit of wisdom. And at this moment, he shows extraordinary maturity, a maturity that he would not have had at 15, would not have had at 20, would not have had at 24, but in this moment, his maturity would be on full display for everyone to see. Now think about this. We are about to hand the power to this man. He's holding all the cards. His word is law. He already has the influence. He is the most powerful person in the room even without the crown, and in this moment, this is what we read. When, the, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron. Now, a covenant is like a contract. If you do this, I'll do that. If, if I'll do this, will you do that? It was an arrangement. It was an arrangement between King David and the people, and it was an arrangement that was completely unnecessary. He's the king. He makes the rules. He puts down the edict, they do it. There's no give and take. You don't do that when you're the king. 
So why in the world, after being mistreated all those years, and remember, he's facing a group of elders who sided with King Saul. He should be ticked off. He could have had vengeance on all of them, and he didn't do it. Instead, he made a covenant with the people. Why? And the last three words in the text that we're going to read in this verse explain it all, and this is the point of the story. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And in this moment, David recognized in public that he would be a king, but he would be a king under authority. In this moment, he submitted himself to God's law, which meant that as a leader, he was submitting himself to the people over which he would rule. This was David's way of saying, I am a king, I am not the king. Because as we've said from the beginning, with all of David's flaws, and David was jacked up, okay? David had some problems. But with all his flaws, David never confused himself with the king of Israel. The end of verse three, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. Now next week, we're gonna pick up the story right there and we're gonna take it to its conclusion. So I don't want you to miss next week, but here's the point. David waited 15 years for God to give him what he had promised him. We wait 15 minutes and we get upset. He waited 15 years. And during that time, he learned some really necessary and valuable lessons that would make him a good and right king. He learned that leadership is a stewardship. It's always a stewardship. And he learned that even kings are accountable. And while this might be inspiring, I mean, if you're a leader, if you're a boss, if you're, you know, if you read this story, and again, we've skipped a bunch of the details, but you read this story, and there's something very inspiring about it. But here's the thing. It's not enough for us to be inspired by this. If you're a Christian, this kind of great is required of you. It's not an option. It's not like God says, you know, I'd really like it if you'd be like that. No, God says, this is what I'm calling you to. This is an inspiring story. I mean, you don't even have to be a believer in Jesus. An atheist could read this story and come away from this story and go, wow, that's a, you know, that's a fascinating, that's a really cool story. It's inspiring. You ever watch somebody do the right thing when they have the power and they make the right decision and they do the right thing for the people that they're leading and you're like, man, I salute you. Good job, way to go. Whenever we see a leader say no to themselves, and yes to the people for whom they have the responsibility to lead. It's always a beautiful thing. But if you're a Christian, it's not enough to be inspired. This is required for us. Here's why I say that. A thousand years later, 20 miles north of Hebron, 20 miles north of where this whole story took place, in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would model the same kind of greatness, only he would do it with just a little bit of a twist. And, and John was there, and he wrote this down in this incredible moment when Jesus modeled what, G, what David had been about, only Jesus put a twist on this. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. This was a celebration that happened every year. This was a big deal to the Jews. 
They, they, they recognize this every year. This was the time they celebrated, the, the time when God led them out of Egypt and took them out of the rule of the Pharaoh. And this would be the last Passover meal for Jesus. And he is gathered in what we refer to as the upper room with his disciples. And they're finishing up the meal. And John, who was there, records this for us. And he says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows he is about to be arrested, tried, and crucified. He knows he's going to be, in 24 hours, he will be dead. After being chased all over Judah, all over Galilee, by men who should have recognized the Messiah and didn't, they missed it. And he would be arrested by men he came to save. And they would arrest him and crucify him anyway. And like David, Jesus has been anointed, but he has not been recognized. And like David, during this same meal, he would inaugurate this Brand new covenant, not between God and the 12 tribes of Israel. This would be a brand new covenant. This is what we find in our New Testament in the second half of our Bible. He would initiate a brand new covenant between God and all mankind, not through the blood of an animal, but through his own blood. And in this moment, this is like a hinge in history. And this is a moment where Jesus, you know, he, he realizes that he has all authority. He's been a rabbi, he's been a miracle worker, and now something changes. He realizes this greatness, the greatness of this moment. And he realizes that he is a Savior and a Messiah. And here's what John said. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things, he has all the juice, under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. In this moment, Jesus has all the power and does not have the crown. He has the authority. He does not have the title. He is holding all the cards. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his authority. And what do you do when you have all the authority? This is what Jesus did. Verse 4, so he got up. And here's the question. What do you do when you have all the power? What do you do when you have all the juice, all the influence, all the eyes are on you? You're the one that makes the decisions. You're the one who has the ability. What do you do if you're Jesus and you really do have the whole world in your hands? What do you do? John says, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And the disciples are stunned at this point. They know what this means. They know what he's about to do. He's girding himself about with a towel. His dude's getting ready to wash our feet. And there's so much emotion in the room. And Peter picks up on what Jesus is getting ready to do. And he says, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. We've got servants for that. You're not going to do that. You're not washing our feet. You're our rabbi. You're our teacher. We've seen what you can do with those hands. Those hands are not meant to wash our dirty, foul feet. And Jesus ignored all of that. And we read this in verse 5. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then he put on his robe that showed, I am the teacher, I am the rabbi, I am the one in charge. And he sat down after having preached the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, and he did it without saying a word. 
And then he sat down. And he said this. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. If I'm not too good to wash your feet, you are not too good to wash one another's feet. So I think he would say to me, and I think he would say to you, if you're a Jesus follower, in those moments that you think you're somebody and you think you've done something big in your life, when, you, when someone hands you the keys, when someone leads you to the corner office, when you get the opportunity of a lifetime to be the one in charge, in that moment, look for more feet to wash. Because perhaps the greatest indicator of our maturity, perhaps the thing that says more about our maturity than anything else, is what we do when we have authority, when we have power, when we have influence. And this is true for most of us in the room this morning at some level because all of us have a title that kind of gives us some of that stuff. It, it might be for you, it might be uh, the crown of father or the crown of mother or brother or sister or manager or owner or captain of the team or employer, but you have authority. We would all do well to embrace the greatness that David learned the hard way and that Jesus modeled for us, that when you are the most powerful person in the room, you leverage that power for the benefit of the people that you serve, that follow you, that have chosen to bring themselves under your mantle. This is what David learned in the desert and what Jesus modeled for us. And if you are a Christian, this is required of you. Because it says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. He didn't come so that everybody would serve him. He came to serve everybody else. That's what leaders do. What if all of us with influence led like that? That kind of selflessness changed the world once. And I believe it can do it again. So go wash feet. Leave here and go wash feet. Let's pray. Father, I think had we been in that upper room and Jesus pulled out our stinking, nasty, dirty feet and washed them, we would have been appalled. We would have been stunned. We would have protested because we would not have understood. But Jesus understood perfectly that when you have authority, all that means is that you become the biggest servant. And so, Father, in this room, there are many people, and many of these people have authority in one form or another, and I'm praying that they would recognize this morning that their ultimate number one responsibility is to serve the people who work for them, to wash their feet. And God, it's hard to do that. It takes humility to do that. It takes us denying ourselves, and we aren't good at those kinds of things. But I pray that this week, you would infuse us with the Holy Spirit to the point that it drives us to our knees and we are found with a wash basin and a towel washing the feet of the people around us. Make us kind. Give us empathy. Make us considerate. Make us good tippers. 
God, do whatever it takes for us to be able to serve the people around us and to do it well. Because we want to be like Jesus. We pray these things and all God's people said, amen.